Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Scientology. Let's talk about that. There are two logos, I guess, as I try to identify these visually. The upper right-hand corner of your screen, those two triangles, certainly the logo that you'll see often associated with Scientology, a symbol of Scientology, these two triangles. There's so many things in Scientology, as we'll see tonight, get pretty convoluted. Nevertheless, uh, these two triangles, I, 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 I'm even reluctant to explain them, but the KRC triangle is the one at the top, which stands for knowledge and responsibility and control. We'll see how that works back into some of their practices. The lower triangle is the ARC triangle, which is about affinity, reality, and communication. And then the cross is an important symbol, obviously important to us, so important to us. For them, you'll see a cross at the top of their buildings and certainly on some of their logos, their podiums and all the rest. But uh, this cross has four diagonal rays in the middle of the crux of the cross, which stand for the eight points of the dynamics of life. And we'll talk a little bit about that as time allows. Nevertheless, we always want to talk about how it's influencing the world. And the problem with Scientology, as we're going to find out, uh, is there are a lot of unsubstantiated claims coming from the headquarters of Scientology. Uh, It's hard to understand in many religions the adherence to the religion because you have so many different kinds of participation, so many different levels of involvement. Uh, But everyone's trying to at least give their numbers and there's some transparency, but Scientology is not that way at all. So it's hard for me even to talk about what the numbers are. It's very hard for us to figure that out. Scientology will claim there's as many as 10 million participants in the world which in light of what we've studied in our world religions and even some of our cults is not that big of a number. And yet for them, that is a, uh, an inflated number as we look at all the things that we can track, the U.S. Census Bureau, which is one. Of course, they believe that most of their uh, adherents are here in the United States. And then all of the defections that we've had in the last 20 years from Scientology, uh, many of them the upper executives that were in charge of things like the data that was dispensed to the public. And so we have more objective estimates that are anywhere from 30,000 to 40,000 people worldwide. Uh, That's a very, uh, very small number. In the U.S., uh, the estimates probably more accurate are as low as 25,000. That's not many. That The Rams game on the weekend, that's going to look like, like there's plenty of good seats left. You can't, I mean, you could take worldwide adherence and not even fill the Coliseum. So lots of uh, research goes into that, and, and I can give you all the references to that, but there's a lot of debate about it. If you told a Scientologist there's only 25,000 Scientologists in the uh, country, they would uh, probably object. But that number is probably accurate, and that would be, just so you know, less than Rastafarians. And you don't run into those at the mall very often. And, and you're as likely, you're more likely to meet a Rastafarian in the United States than you are a Scientologist or a U.S. Sikh, Sikhs in the United States. Uh, you'll find some. You'll see them by their distinctive headwear. You know who they are. If not, can't help you then with that right now. But I don't have a picture for you. But 
I'm just giving you a sense. I mean, you could take the Mennonites or Quakers, and I mean, they would dwarf the size of the Scientologists in our country. So uh, this is a small group of people, and it's been on the decline since uh, 2001. If you track all the numbers that we can track and compare apples to apples in the United States and worldwide, we've definitely seen a sharp turn uh, since the turn of the century in America in particular. And that has been, I'm going to make this case probably a couple of times, because of the uh, expansion and, and proliferation of information about Scientology on the Internet. And that has killed it. This has been a very Gnostic organization with secrets. And those secrets, when they're out, uh, really takes the wind out of the sails of, of the movement. And so it, it is in decline. And it may be. It may go away completely at some point. Satan has plenty of uh, counterfeits he can substitute for this one. Uh, but it was one that hit a nerve in the 50s and 60s, as we'll see. Uh, but it is uh, on the decline today. And yet, why then would would we study it? Well, one of the reasons is uh, the place you're going to find it is right here in Southern California. Now, this is a broader map than I would normally show, and you can see there's not much going on in our corner of Southern California, but you will see up in the L.A. area where the greatest concentration of outlets and churches and organizations uh, related to Scientology, that's where, that's where it's all at. And if you were to zoom in on this map in your mind or in your eyes there looking at the screen, you'll see the greatest concentration right down there northeast as you go up the 101 and cut through there in, in Hollywood, past Silver Lake, around the corner from Elysian Park and all of that. Now, if you get really close here and zoom in here, you'll see three or four of these pins on uh, Fountain Avenue. And if you have any uh, exposure to the icons of Scientology, certainly that purple building, uh, that's right here in a complex of buildings on Flower Avenue. I know you can't see it very well. I'll give you a purple circle uh, to circle the building here. Uh, And it's this building that you see oftentimes Uh, When people are referencing it, it's on the cover of many books, many exposés, documentaries about Scientology. And so that purple building is is right there on uh, Flower Avenue uh, by the hospital, if you know this area. And uh, that's the back side of it. You can see on the other side, and I forget the street on the other side there of Flower, this is the view with an auditorium and, uh, you know, parking structures and and, uh, offices. And if you pull back even further, the big sign here with the cross, with the uh, starburst in the middle of the cross, and welcoming signs to welcome people in. If you go up the road from Fountain Avenue up to Franklin Avenue, this is the building you can see off of the freeway. And I have to travel this for many reasons to go teach at seminary and teaching in various places. And uh, this is the building you see. It's just off the north side of the 101 freeway. Uh, And it's that fancy building. This is an old picture of it without the signs before it became uh, the Scientology building. It used to be the old Chateau Elise uh, right there on, uh, right off the freeway. It was built in 1927. It was a long-term apartment for the movie stars back in the day. Uh, this is on the 101 freeway where you start to look to the right, you'll see that chateau, that building, and then you can see the Hollywood sign and all that as you're going up that freeway. Uh, it was a very famous place because all the big stars of the 30s and 40s stayed there. 1969, it started to be leased and used by the uh, Scientology. I hate to call it a church, but that's what they called themselves then, the Church of Scientology, and still do. And finally, it was purchased by Scientology in 1973. Now, this is not open to the public. It is now called the Celebrity Center for Scientology because their focus is on 
the celebrities in Hollywood. And that's an apropos use, at least for the old timers there in Hollywood, because that building was such a famous building for uh, all the Hollywood stars. It's a, it's a beautiful building, I guess, if you like that kind of architecture with all the tall palm trees. But if you look now, these days, up at the top of the spire of the building, the chateau, uh, you'll see the triangles around the S. S obviously stands for Scientology. I should have said that earlier. Uh, the triangles representing virtues of Scientology, these, the focus of Scientology, and it's called the Celebrity Center. And it literally is the Celebrity Center. It's where all the celebrities go. It's where the celebrities invite each other to go to hear uh, the lectures. You can see this is inside the Celebrity Center. You can see the CC crest there uh, over the Travoltas, and um, there they are in one of the many functions at the Celebrity Center. A lot goes on there. We'll talk about that. If you look down in our neighborhood here, thinking about Scientology, there was one little pin, if you noticed in the big picture, down in our neck of the woods. And this is here off the toll road, uh, off a lake forest. And if you look at it on a map, you'll see that it does say the Church of Scientology. If you zoom in real close, even on most maps that are out there on the Internet, it's the Church of Scientology. It's like one of these tilt-up buildings that we have, and it shares that with, what does that say, CrossFit. So there's sweaty people on one side of this building and the, and the Church of Scientology. But if you look real close, I mean, it looks like our building. I guess that's you know, South County Church in tilt-up buildings. But if you look at the building itself, if you're in that neighborhood over there by the toll road, uh, you'll see it doesn't say the Church of Scientology. As a matter of fact, what you'll see it says there is it's a South Coast Mission. That's what it's called. Now, if you saw a building in South County called South Coast Mission, I don't know what you'd think. You'd think, well, maybe that's, you know, I don't know, a Christian church. Missions oftentimes in the name of a church. Maybe it's some kind of uh, Christian ministry. And if you looked up their website, it's, it's under the banner and the URL, Orange County Life Improvement Center. That's the South Coast Mission. And if you read through the website, as I have done, you can look endlessly for anything related to, at least in name, Scientology. You won't find it, but you'll see if you've studied Scientology, you see everything about Scientology there without the names. Well, I found one of the execs that bailed out after the turn of the century who runs a blog. There are several of them. And he talked about this place uh, in our neighborhood. And he said the clever people at the Orange County Life Improvement Center, I know it's probably too small to read, but I just want to clip it right from his, his website, a.k.a. the Church of Scientology Mission of South Coast, have their own unofficial website called the OCLifeImprovementCenter.com, which if you want to check that out while we're sitting here, of course, utilize our free Wi-Fi which makes no mention of Scientology or LRH, that's L. Ron Hubbard, anywhere on it. Uh, they even offer, and this is what they do offer, things like this, anger management classes. And again, you've got to know the rest of his blog to know why he says how deceptive that is. One of the funniest sections of the website is a place where they cleverly edited uh, L. Ron Hubbard's name off the website, and then he quotes from it. Of course, this is a blog for a lot of people that are coming out of Scientology, and they know all these things. And it says, at the, or at the Orange County Life Improvement Center, we utilize the techniques that have helped improve the lives of individuals uh, the world over for more than 60 years. His work has been recognized worldwide as revolutionary with unparalleled workability. As such, it remains the widest read body of work on self-help. And then, of course, the author goes back and says his work, they don't name it, no name. And, and so if you are in South County, uh, Rancho Santa Margarita, you're out that direction, Lake Forest, uh, East Lake Forest, and people ask you about South Coast Mission, uh, that is not a Christian church. That is Scientology. 
and all the things on their website are offered to help improve your life, and it's very veiled, at least on the surface, of what they are, which you can see that tells you a little bit about the reputation of this organization right now. It is in decline, and you have to have organizations like this that hook you in by getting you to worry about your uh, narcotics addiction. They have narcotics uh, counseling to get you off your drugs and life coaching and anger management classes and parenting and marriage and all those kinds of things. So that's their approach, but it is Scientology as the maps, and I'm glad the maps all reflect that. If you were to look it up, it would say Scientology. Now, well, right here in in an unincorporated part of Riverside County, not far from San Jacinto, not far from Hemet, is a piece of property that is a very important international headquarters for Scientology. So when you're going out to the desert and you go down the 60, just there to the south, you're passing the the conglomerate of buildings and the headquarters of uh, Scientology. There are mansions there. Tom Cruise goes to hang out there. Got a big mansion for L. Ron Hubbard. Even though he's dead, they believe he's going to return and come back to life and live here in San Jacinto. Gets weirder. But this is an interesting thing to, to research. I mean, if you're poking around on the internet and, and if this you know sparks your interest and curiosity in what I'm t- teaching on tonight, uh, there are certain folks, and of course, this is a very high secret organization, but with the internet, so much of this has come out, and there are people that used to be on the inside that have mapped this all out, and they tell you what's in each building, but this is a big compound, and this is the world headquarters. And here's the mansion, for instance, that was built for L. Ron Hubbard, as we'll talk about. Now, that is the private compound. There's a lot of things going on there, a lot of claims made about what goes on there, a lot of secrecy. There's barbed wire fences, there's shards on the top of their big walled fences. I mean, they don't want you in there. You hang around, they will come out. It's gated, there's guards. It's a very interesting place, just north of a golf course there. But the open door, come and visit us headquarters, is here in Clearwater, Florida. You can see Orlando here in the middle of the uh, map. And over here on the Gulf side is Clearwater, Florida. And they've just recently, uh, relatively speaking, finished a gigantic spiritual headquarters for Scientology here. They opened a new building in, in November of 2013. So three years ago, they opened this up. And it is a really magnificent building that they have built. And you see, again, at the top of the, of the cupola up there is the cross with the starburst in the middle. Uh, and you drive by that and you think this is a, this is a church. Maybe there's you know, some preaching going on in there. Uh, the grand opening, they brought everybody they could find. This looks like all of the Scientologists in America have showed up at the center here. And, you know, there are Scientologists that happen to listen to this. I mean, they're going to be mad because they think there's millions. And they talk about opening new churches every, you know, few months. And, but it's, it's not true. And I'm completely convinced with all my resources that that's not happening. Anyway, here's the grand opening. They had all these people swarming outside. On the inside, it is an opulent, amazingly uh, decked out place. Uh, you can go in here. This isn't like the Mormon temple in La Jolla. This is a place you can come. You can go into their, their stocked bookstore and buy all the books uh, from L. Ron Hubbard, and uh, it's, it's an amazing place. Now, Scientology and popular culture, I've already dropped a couple names and, and even a couple celebs on the pictures there, but that is their focus, and it becomes their number one PR campaign to try and grow their 
quote-unquote religion. That is what they want to do. And of course, the number one and highest profile guy at the top of their organization is Tom Cruise. And you take the starburst out, it looks like he's there at a pulpit with a cross on the front of it. Uh, but of course, this is the uh, Scientology cross, which uh, has nothing to do with Christ. Now, we'll see what it does have to do with Christ, which is very little. And he is a major spokesman who's worked real hard uh, to climb in this organization and promote it. And probably second to Tom Cruise uh, in terms of, uh, by the way, Mimi Rogers was his wife who originally introduced uh, him to Scientology. He got involved in 1990. Uh, he claims that his, you know, the, the techniques of Scientology had healed his dyslexia and you know, helped him be the kind of amazing guy that he thinks himself to be. Second to him in, in notoriety is John Travolta, another guy who, if you read all the material that's out there, and there's a lot of polemic material against Scientology, there are many stories of him wanting to get out at one point, uh, and th that you'll find throughout the night. There's a lot of concern about those who want to leave. Any secret organization doesn't want defectors, and those apostates are uh, followed, and, and there's private eyes on them, and there's all kinds of video confrontations you can see on YouTube if you look it up of people that have uh, been stalked by the, by the church. But anyway, there is stories about John wanting to get out uh, but he has stayed in, and he is uh, a part of Scientology. Uh, he claims that it has certainly helped him through the loss, the grief that he had, and the loss of his son when his son died. I think he was two years older. Young son, Jet, in, in 2009. He thinks it's a fabulous uh, religion, and uh, I've heard him on camera talk about it. Christy Alley is another who's very active in the church. Here she is at the Celebrity Center. The sign is kind of hard to read, but that's the sign I showed you previously uh, at there on uh, right off the 101. She is uh, very high up in the organization. She's raised a Methodist, but now is a member of the church. She's been in the church since 1979. She's worked her way all the way through the ranks, almost all the way through the ranks. She admits if you follow any of the celebrity news, which I don't know why you would do that, but if you do, uh, you know, she was addicted to cocaine at one time, but claims Scientology has certainly uh, changed her life, helped her. She's no longer dependent on that because of Scientology. She gave, by the way, $5 million to the church in a single year in 2007, bought a mansion there in Clearwater, Florida from uh, Lisa Marie Presley, who's another Scientologist. So Clearwater, Florida, you'll see a lot of attraction of the Scientologists moving there. And, and people congregating there. And of course, these bi-coastal people like our Hollywood elite here, they're in LA and in Florida often. Another guy from the business world, Sky Dayton, is founder of Earthlink. You might remember, entrepreneur, made a lot of, uh, co-founder of the e-companies. He's been very active in the e-commerce and all the rest. But he is another one. His wife and he are Scientologists. They have three kids. They're raising their kids as Scientologists. And since I've thrown a lot of jazzers under the bus the last couple of weeks, uh, I thought I'd throw in Chick Corea, if you know jazz. He's a great, gifted jazz uh, fusion pianist and composer, and he is very, very active in uh, Scientology, dedicated a lot of his work to Scientology, had a lot of connections with what's gone on through Hubbard's writings and all the rest. Uh, Jenna Elfman, who is, I guess, a TV star that you might know, here she is speaking at a Scientology event. Uh, she's done a lot with their outreach programs, which they like to focus on in terms of 
what they do, but in reality, the people that have come out of this organization who I know sometimes have to be suspect in what they say, uh, but nevertheless, this is claimed by many to be a lot of the front to get people to see this organization as respectable, and uh, not a lot of interest or money or effort goes into it, not, at least not as much as is claimed. Nevertheless, she's um, often seen in, on these advisory boards for these organizations. Uh, Erica Christensen is another one, younger actress. Uh, she grew up in Scientology. Uh, I've seen her on video uh, defending Scientology. I've seen her in interviews uh, where she is uh, talking about what a great thing Scientology is. And, of course, as many do, whenever Scientology comes up, very defensive. People don't understand it. We get a bad rap. People think it's all secretive, which, of course, it is, as I'll show you. Nevertheless, uh, they, they claim uh, they've been misunderstood. And one of the reasons it's harder and harder for people like uh, Erica to defend this, uh, this thing called Scientology is because some of these people that were just as into it as she was, like Leah Remy, who, uh, uh, Remini, is that right? Uh, who was on that TV show for so long, done a lot in movies and TV, has come out of this not too long ago and written books. This is a, a book she wrote called Troublemaker, Sur- Surviving Hollywood in Scientology. And I've read this book, and it's not a whole lot about... Hollywood. It's only Hollywood insofar as it deals with Scientology. And you do get some tidbits, I guess, if you're interested in her TV career and her, her movie career and her actings and, and all that. Uh, I read it, of course, for the, my interest in Scientology. And if you do read it, by the way, a lot of profanity in it. I don't know why she has to do that, but definitely spills the dirt on Scientology and shows how just her experience in it is, is, I mean, you got people like this claiming it's the greatest thing and all these secrets aren't true. Then you get people that were in it for years that come out of it who are just as high up and just as involved uh, saying this is this is horrible. Another defector uh, is uh, Paul Haggis, who has been the filmmaker who's produced things like Million Dollar Baby, um, Crash, Valley of Elah, and he is uh, Oscar-winning, as you can see in this picture. He was a part of it for a long time. I've seen him interviewed uh, in talking about his involvement in the church. He has uh, a lesbian daughter, and uh, because she's come out and he discovered the writings of L. Ron Hubbard condemn homosexuality, that was the breaking point for him, and he, he split uh, and not too long ago either, as I recall, it was in the last few years. Uh, but he's been a vocal opponent now of Scientology, not just because of the homosexual, uh, the condemnation of homosexuality, which is not a big emphasis in all the reading that I've done, but certainly is there, and it's written, and it's in print. But he's exposed a lot of the other things that most of the other actors or high executives that have come out of it say the exact same thing. Uh, and even Superman can fall for the lie. And, and Christopher Reeves, uh, you remember he became a quadriplegic after that horse accident. He was in it and was involved in it, but he at one point also, and we'll talk about some of the methods of Scientology, did a little bit of a co- covert deception in his involvement with some of these methods and proved to himself that this was a crock. And so he did step out of this and is no longer with it. So those last three are, are a couple, few celebrities that have stepped out of Scientology and they've taken it on the chin. Leah Remini is probably the one who will explain to you in the most graphic details how attacked she was uh, and, and what the cost is to try and uh, step out of Scientology. And, of course, all the execs today will say, well, none of it's true. Uh, but I've watched enough of these denials uh, and knowing enough about people, and I, you, just, you can see this. there's no way to defend uh, the facts and the details and the circumstances and the dates and the locations of all that they say. Truth and the facts are on the sides of these people that have reported these things. They may be 
inflated, but the facts are the facts. So we've got to start by understanding this religion, quote-unquote, by understanding something about L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard was born in 1911 in Nebraska, a little farm town. He became a, a very active boy in scouting. He was actually the youngest Eagle Scout at that particular time at, and became an Eagle Scout at age 12. Uh, loved the outdoors. He very creative, very uh, precocious in terms of his personality. Uh, at age 21, he chartered a boat. He, his dad was in the Navy, and that took him all over the place. He lived in San Diego. He lived in Seattle. He lived in Bremington, Washington, where there's a naval base. Uh, he lived in, um, in Washington, D.C. So he moved around all the time as a kid and kind of retreated into his own kind of world, as some of these kids do that can't stay in a place for more than a couple years. And he was a reader, very imaginative. He loved the stories that his dad's colleagues would tell in the Navy and uh, just create a very fanciful imagination. Uh, so much so that at age 21, he left on his own to search for pirate treasure in the Caribbean uh, by renting a boat. It was a disaster, by the way. And again, the facts are on the side of all of the evidence that can be read about these things. He claimed many things uh, about embellishing these stories to be much more than they were. But there have been so many things that are so widely disseminated on the internet uh, in terms of uh, producing facts and records that prove that things like this were absolute failures. He didn't get very far. Uh, he came back within a matter of weeks, I believe it was, two weeks. And any stories that he spun after the return of, of this short excursion um, cannot be believed uh, today. He married his first wife, his first of three, at age 22, Polly Grubb. It's a very sad story. He neglected this gal, ended up abandoning her and, and a child uh, that he had with her. Uh, he tried to go to college after trying to go out and explore the world on a boat that he chartered. And after two years, dropped out, flunked out of his some of his uh, classes, some that he would claim proficiency in, and he claimed a resume that was over the top. One of the schools that he unfortunately named in his resumes com uh, continually was easy to look up. Well, at least it is today, is nothing more than a degree mill, kind of a mail-in, get your degree. The other ones were all embellished. He, he didn't have an education. He was very creative, very imaginative, but didn't have the education he claimed to have. Um, started writing fiction magazines, uh, short stories. And I say fiction because a lot of it was cowboy adventures and train heists and all kinds of things that were selling. The pulp fiction category, which were these magazines, you know, this is before television, when you had people just reading these, these rags. Pulp was, was describing the kind of paper it was written on and or printed on. And he would write these fictions. They would make a penny a, a word. So he wasn't going to get rich off of this, although he did learn to crank out uh, these stories. Uh, he was moved into writing science fiction, which was a growing genre in that era, and he loved that and got, got good at it. Uh, some of the magazines, you can look these up, these Pulp Fiction magazines that people read. You know, he would write, here's some of his earliest ones on, you know, adventures, people getting kicked out of planes here, it looks like. Uh, and then he went into science fiction. He wrote for a series, a magazine series called Astounding Science Fiction. Uh, they called it science fiction for short in all the historical uh, references to it, but the title of it was Astounding. And he was uh, one of the main writers uh, there. You can see him up in the upper left-hand corner. These are all ones that he was a part of or contributed to. You can see the price going up from 15 cents to 20 cents, 25 cents inflation back in the day uh, as he got more popular and wrote better for better, uh, I suppose, uh, better organizations or at least growing publishing companies that 
um, allowed him to, to, to make something. He wasn't making a whole lot, but he was, he was liking what he did, and he was very prolific at it. Uh, and here he is, young man, sitting at his typewriter. He, he did the hunt and pack, claimed to type 90 words a minute with two fingers. At age 30, he, he joined the Navy. He tried several times in, in, to join the service. And, and this is, by the way, just as World War II is ramping up, he offered his services and didn't get accepted. But as the war started to ramp up, he was finally accepted by the Department of uh, Defense, Department of War, I guess it was called at the time, and uh, was given a post in the Navy. He was, after a few months, he was a lieutenant, junior grade, uh, and didn't do very well. Matter of fact, he has write-ups, and there are records of his superiors writing him up as a overly sensitive, easily offended, poor write-ups. Of course, now that's easy to find. Back in the day, he spun it as being an amazing war hero. He would always use his great imagination, as he had honed in his writings, to talk about himself as the hero of every story. And, of course, he spun tales about his time in the Navy. He did end up becoming a navigator in a submarine. Unfortunately, out here off of San Diego, he drifted into Mexican uh, waters. And off of Tijuana, he wrongly fired on the Coronados Islands off of Tijuana there and was written up and disciplined for that. Of course, he didn't add that in the stories he told about being a great uh, war hero. But the Mexicans didn't like that very much. And uh, America got got on him for it. Anyway, he gets, out of the, he gets out of the Navy and he moves up to Los Angeles. Uh, and what's funny is he should have gone back to find his wife and, and live with his wife and his child, but he doesn't. He ends up moving in with Jack Parsons. And uh, maybe if you're older and you know a little bit about uh, the history in the 50s of what was going on in LA, you might remember the name Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons was, was at Caltech teaching at Caltech, became uh, a part of NASA and and, uh, was a worker in NASA studying uh, explosives and lots of things that he did, rocket uh, rocket, uh, propulsion. Uh, He was also, the reason we know him today, kind of through uh, the fanciful history of Los Angeles, is because he was uh, good friends with uh, Aleister Crowley. Remember him? He called himself the Beast, the 666. He was popularizing Satanism. Everyone was taking drugs back in the day and was starting to live in communes. Well, they were living up in L.A., not far from where the Scientology enclave is now. And he became roommates with Jack Parson. Well, they were actively involved in satanic rituals and all kinds of occultic practices. Now, again, all of that came out later. And Ron Hubbard decided to tell everybody in retrospect as he revised his history... Uh, It's an unbelievable tale, but he says he was sent there by the government to infiltrate the satanic occult and make sure that it was understood by the government and disbanded. And and the proof that he has for that is that eventually this group that Jack Parsons and Aleister Crowley were a part of, it it did, you know, peter out. And he claims that that was because he went and infiltrated it on behalf of the government. Interesting thing there, uh, Jack Parsons sitting with his mistress, his girlfriend, Sarah Northrup, they called her Betty, they all got chummy as they lived in the same building, and and Jack was um, roommates with Ron. He ends up falling in love with Sarah and runs off to marry Sarah. I'll get back to the roommate comment in a minute. Ron goes, runs off with Sarah, who is Jack Parsons' girl, good friends with Aleister Crowley, the Satanist. The problem is he was married, as I told you. He just didn't go back home after he got out of the Navy. He ends up marrying Sarah, but he wasn't divorced from his first wife. That's a problem. 
He married two girls at one time. She was 22, he was 35, and was involved in bigamy. Ron, by the way, and this is chronicled in in a couple of different circumstances, but one of the places, and I've heard this from the time I was growing up and learning a little bit about Scientology without scrutinizing it, that L. Ron Hubbard had said early in his life he wanted to start a religion. Well, this is one of the chronicled and, and footnoted referenced conversations that he had while he was living with those guys that he did, at least he, his friends attested the fact that it was his interest to start a religion, and this was years before he actually did. Well, he runs away from the enclave up in L.A. to come down and start writing with his new second wife, and I mean second wife as in his second wife, he's got two now, not living with the first, uh, down here in a cottage in Laguna Beach. Anyway, right up the road, he then got very active in, in writing. Again, writing fiction, science fiction. And he wrote tons of it at that particular time. During that time, living with his second wife, he was getting aid from the government because he was retired from the Navy and he had claimed certain disabilities from the Navy. And there are documents of him writing the government asking for psychological help, that he needed psychological help because he was concerned that he was crazy. So that was during this period in Laguna Beach. I just want to note that, that here he was in this period of time, just prior, talking about starting religion, asking for psychological help, very prolific science fiction writer and all that going on in this period of his life. So he writes a book that comes out in May, uh, May uh, 1950, May the 9th. It, is, it has come out. And what you'll find if you track some of the early writings that he's written, which I've read several, and then you read the book that he came out with, Dianetics, you'll see a lot of what he wrote in those science fiction books just found their way over into this book that he tried to now present to the public as serious science. The things he was writing in these fanciful rags, these Pulp Fiction uh, rags, he was now saying, this is, this is scientific truth that I've discovered. Here was the original book, the original cover of the book, Dianetics. You can see it's called A Handbook uh, for Dianetic Therapy by L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, when this was advertised in the old series of magazines that he used to uh, write for, so it defines Dianetics, which he defines, he's not real good with Greek, but he often tries to make his connections to Greek, but the science of the mind, which I guess is, is good enough, I suppose, uh, through the mind, through, through, through our thoughts. In this ad, which was in the old paper he wrote for, it talked about that science fiction becoming science. And it says, not the first time that we've come up with something in our fictional characters and our science fiction motifs that is actually proven to be reality. And that's how they sold the book. At last, true science of the mind, that's what Dianetics was. It was supposed to be something that was supposed to understand who we were, the modern science of mental health, a handbook on modern therapy. Now, the book that you've seen, the cover that has been uh, widely distributed is the one with the volcano on the front of it. I assume you've seen that. And it's still out there and it's still going. And I remember as a kid uh, growing up seeing that here in Southern California on tables and people selling it and in bookstores. Uh, and it was very, very popular. Claimed to be the science of the mind, which in essence is what the title means. Modern science of mental health. We've already said all that. He claims that it's been derived from all of his travels, all of his research, all of his cruising around the world. Of course, he embellished his view of himself in my, people's minds as his great explorer. But he claims openly, this comes from medicine men, shaman, cults, psychology. I've taken all that I've learned and I've 
condensed it into something that finally is the greatest discovery that has ever been made. Millions of years we've been waiting for this revealing of understanding how our mind works. Well, things were just right in our world for this at the time. Uh, The way it was pitched, uh, and if you read it, it's kind of hard to follow uh, a lot of the things that he does, but he basically invents a whole new vocabulary for how we are to understand the way we think, who we are, how our mind works, and it sold 150,000 copies uh, in the first year, like 55,000 in the first couple of months. I mean, this is an amazing uh, seller, and it did really well, like 420 pages. It's a big, it's a big book. Soon as it came out and soon as it got popular, people started reviewing it, and most physicians, psychologists started immediately writing against it and said, this is foolish, this is hogwash, this has no basis in science. It was presented as science. Of course, the old science fiction rag that he wrote for us says, look, our science fiction was right, it is science, and of course, that's how it was presented to the world as Ron tried to downplay a lot of his connection to his former writings. He's now presenting something that is supposed to be respectable science of the mind. People said it's no good. Newsweek did an article on it. Of course, anything that sells like that, they're going to get the attention of the press. They said it's the poor man's psychoanalysis. It's a way for you to figure out yourself and to get with others and to figure out your problems. And so psychoanalysis and Freud's theories and all the therapy that was going on in the day uh, in the 50s, this was uh, now your way to figure it out on your own. Read this 400-page book and you'll have it. Even Hubbard's colleagues and friends read it and said, you know what, it's one thing to write a science fiction story, but now you're trying to present this as the truth, as how to understand the mind. This is preposterous. And not only that, it's unreadable. If you've tried to read it, it is very, I mean, it it, it is tough. Isaac Asimov, if you know that name, he was the professor of uh, biochemistry at Boston University, who actually did a great job trying to popularize physics and concepts that were hard to understand into modern writings. He did write some science fiction. He was known for his science fiction, but he was a guy that if you wanted a a template of what Ron seemed to be doing, in other words, understanding the realities of of things that were scientific and then also writing science fiction, here's the paradigm. And and Asimov said, this is just gibberish. Um, That was his review of the book. After that book sold so well and it made so much money, he started putting money into something now, an organization, a company called Dianetic Research Foundation. And this was his baby. He started working the uh, success and popularity that he had into leveraging this into a money-making organization, opening up branches, opening up centers where you could come and have the the Dianetic therapy in your life. And so it, it started to go for a while, but it got so much pushback and so many people that would say, you know, it didn't really work for me, that it, it came on to hard times. He wasn't as good of a businessman, at least at this particular point in his life, than he thought he was, and this thing started to tank. And he ended up, unfortunately, going bankrupt, having to sell the rights to his book and the fledgling company. They were trying to sell off their buildings and their leases, and at the end, he's left with nothing, not even the rights to the book, Dianetics. So he's done. I mean, most people thought he's, he's finished. Uh, well, he has to, and he's committed to, at this particular point, reinventing himself, which is exactly what he does. He can't continue with the Dianetic Research Foundation, which, had it not gone bankrupt, that's what we would know it as. Uh, he had to now figure out a new way to start something fresh. So he took all the concepts from Dianetics, because he wrote it, even though he didn't own it anymore, and he now created something called Scientology, which we need to figure out and try and define. Let's define, as best we can, Scientology. Scientology, and you can see if that was published in 1950, a couple years, went down, reinvent yourself. He's back by 1954 with something brand new, Scientology. Now, I'm going to go in this slide and try and define it for you from 
a reasonable perspective. Here's what Scientology is, not based on what their website will tell you or their books will tell you. I mean, this is what it is, having been immersed in this myself, at least in terms of research. It is nothing other than a self-help program. That's what it is. It is marketed this way. It's presented this way. Even what we saw in Lake Forest in the building that says on the map, Church of Scientology, everything there on the menu is self-help. You got a problem, we'll fix it. You got addictions, we'll fix it. You're depressed, we'll fix it. You're lonely, we'll help you. It's something that's supposed to help you uh, reach your full potential, be self-realized, to use psychological terms. Uh, And it is a fanciful method, a method that is filled with all kinds of fanciful things under the guise of science that tries to now put this self-help in terms of things that now let you recognize you understand yourself, you understand your mind, you understand who you are, with a whole series of new words for all these things, which is, of course, what science fiction usually does. You go to another planet, you go to another place, you've got all these strange things happening and different definitions and different words. So that's what this is. And I want to prove this to you. I just got a series of slides here of people. happens to be I found some uh, videos promoting Scientology and the work of Scientology that had subtitles. So I just took some screen grabs here to show you, and I'm not cherry-picking. I could have done this all night long of what basically they say when they're saying, you ought to get into this. Here are some of the testimonials. Change me into the smiling face that you see right now. I mean, that, 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 that's the pitch. I have so much energy to create my future. I've never felt more able in my entire life, she says. I can do magic in the world. And uh, you'll see in a minute, uh, there's some literal definitions to some of that in people's minds. I'm like exhilarated, you know. I guess you say that with a valley accent if you'd like. Because if I can feel any better than I'm feeling right now, you know, it's in a sentence obviously, but he's saying it would be great. I I mean, I've reached the pinnacle of feeling fantastic. Uh, There's no greater superpower, let me tell you. I mean, I found superpower. I mean, uh, she said I was a passenger on the train, but now I'm driving the train, talking of her, her own life. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, I mean, I guess Christianity has its version of this too, right? Oh, you got a problem? Ah, let's fix that. I mean, here are the testimonials for Scientology, right? The universe is just mine. I mean, that seems hyperbolous. Uh, but she says, maybe, maybe I don't own it, but it is like a big playground to me now. So that's great. I'd like the universe to be my playground. I'm supercharged. Like someone hooked me up to a battery. You're in for a wild ride. Now, here's my favorite. This guy's so amped on Scientology, I can sense the saline content in my cells. Okay? Well, that's new. I've never, I've never felt that. And you don't think these actors and actresses are involved in this. Here's one of the promos. Here's Erica Christensen, right? Big-time movie star. She said this whole thing, straight out of this, not out of the world. It's out of the universe. It's awesome. All right. Scientology is nothing other than a fanciful method of self-help. It's a self-improvement program. That's what it is. And I prove that to you, I hope. You can look at all the Scientology material. It's trying to help you be, as it puts on its website, spiritually enlightened. You can put that label on it, but people want to be powerful. They want to reach their potential. They want, to be, they want the universe to be their playground. And I guess if you want to feel the saline in their cells. Uh, They want to find this great apex in their life. Uh, It turned in, in, in his mind from a business to a religion. When he moved from Dianetics to Scientology, he said, now I'm going to make this something that the government's not going to get its grappling hooks on in terms of taxes. And you can read this from all kinds of of sources. But he wanted to see this as a religion primarily for the tax exemption. So he had this initially, but the IRS in 1967 revoked it because there was nothing about it that seemed adequately religious 
it certainly didn't fit the mold, and the IRS is pretty liberal about giving status to organizations, no matter how strange they might be. Uh, but this one was too strange and outside the pale, and clearly, as he did this the second time through, he wasn't going to let this tank uh, financially, and he was packing away the money and putting it in Swiss accounts and offshore accounts. And so the IRS said, you're not a religion. We're not going to give you tax exemption. Donations to this organization or any kind of revenue is not going to be tax-free. Well, there's an amazing story about this, but in 1993, the IRS relented and gave them status of uh, being a church. It is phenomenal that this happened. There was something called uh, Operation Snow White, if you want to read one of the dramatic stories, which, of course, I don't know what Scientology does with this. I could, fi- I could find no retort to the claims because it's all on record. But they actually indicted 10 of the high-ranking involved, or the involved parties, including the wife of L. Ron Hubbard himself, went to jail. They all went to jail because they went after the IRS to bug their phones. They broke into at least three of their major headquarters. Uh, they were involved in blackmailing the IRS and uh, got busted between 67 and 93 in the middle. I forget what year it was. You could look it up. Uh, when they finally did get their 501c3 nonprofit religious exemption with the IRS in 1993, they had stacked up so many lawsuits against the IRS. Litigation was stacked a mile high. One of the defectors that was high up in the organization that defected from Scientology said he was in the room at the very end when this deal fell apart. Well, I should say when the deal came through for them, uh, they, they had an agreement with the IRS that basically, and you can look this up, the IRS may deny it, we'll drop these lawsuits if you just give us our exemption back. And uh, the IRS folded, and in 1993, they got their exemption back, and they did. You can look it up. They dropped all the lawsuits against the IRS. And that was after the failed infiltration of bugging their offices and getting their files, and it's quite a dramatic story. Several books chronicle the history of that and how Ron Hubbard's wife ends up in prison over it. What are the basic beliefs? Okay, that's what it is. It's a self-help program. Under the guise of religion, a self-help program, which a lot of, unfortunately, religions do look like self-help programs, which is not what religion is all about, Uh, shouldn't be at least, not biblical, pure and undefiled religion as the Bible puts it. But what is it all about? Well, if you want the inviting version, as you can see, even our closest Scientology church, quote-unquote, doesn't even say it's connected with L. Ron Hubbard or Scientology. You're going to have to learn that as you get into it. So I can't tell you you're going to get a lot of great information that's going to give you unvarnished and clear, transparent facts about the organization, but you're going to get a lot more than you're going to get, it seems, from our friends down the street. Go to Scientology.org. You can look at what is Scientology, and you'll get enough there that will show you the basic structure that I'm going to stay mostly within here tonight as I continue on the basic beliefs. So Scientology.org is the website. You can click through that. Keep your volume down because there's all kinds of videos on it if you're going to do it now. But you can look at all that it says about itself, what it is, how it works. They're definitely going to spotlight their, their altruistic and, and, and uh, charity work that they do in, in different places. But study the truth. That's just one of the banners that f- flashed by. What are the basic beliefs? Let me summarize for you. Okay? A lot of this comes right from their website. I'll go beyond that in a minute on good, good authority. But let's just start with the basics. People are immortal spirits. And in that regard, we've seen this with many religions in our study so far. They've got this right. We are not material. We are spiritual. There's something immaterial about who we are that is the true us. And in that sense, I'm with you so far, right? We are spirits. We're not immortal spirits. 
in the only sense that mortal spirits put on immortality. And I'm all for that, but we had a definite beginning and we will have in this life and we will have immortality because of the gift of of God and his favor that he grants us in Christ. But they say, no, we preexisted. The immortality of our lives came before. As a matter of fact, let's just put it this way. People have, all of us have lived previous lives going back uh, millions and millions of years. And that sounds a lot like Hinduism, which, by the way, is one of the things he quotes early on in his Dianetics writing of his influence from Hinduism. And, and he even quotes in one point, I could have put the quotes up, as his basic indebtedness, not just to, to uh, Hinduism, but Buddhism and the Buddha himself, saying, I, I learned so much from him uh, in, in learning of Buddhism. So previous lights, reincarnation was the, it would be the word we use. That's not how they frame it normally, but it's the same concept. Our lives keep coming back and back. The other thing they're big on, they'll put it right up front. I think you'll find it on the first page of their Scientology website when it says, what do we believe? It'll say, people are good. We are good. We're intrinsically good, inherently good. And that's a big point. The point is, who you are as spirit is good. You know, you've got a problem encased in your humanity, to use my words in the Bible, the flesh, but you are good. Now, we would say, you're in fallen flesh, but you've got a problem called sin and you're alienated from God. Obviously, you know that, but they have just the opposite view. And because you're intrinsically good, your capabilities are unlimited. And when they say unlimited, they mean unlimited. A lot like Mormonism, there is an ultimate end game of you becoming godlike. Now, they don't work hard to define God, but there is something about the transcendence of my life not being inhibited by material things and having power that goes beyond anything we see or experience here. They do talk about salvation, but what they talk about is us improving ourselves. We've got to save ourselves. And Ron Hubbard said it many times. We are the ones that bring salvation to ourselves. We are responsible for our own salvation. And just for those of us who are going to measure everything by our understanding of the fallen problem and the redemption in Christ and the need for grace, I mean, I just need to say that. It jumps off the page every time I read it in any organization that we are the ones that are our own salvation and our own saviors. And they're, they're very clear about that. Truth is determined subjectively. You'll see this in all the early writings of L. Ron Hubbard, too. Though he makes emphatic claims, and that's why I say this is inconsistently, this is inconsistently applied, because he's making affirmations that he's saying are true, and yet he says, but you don't have to believe it. You're going to believe what's true for you. And you'll see that quoted often in the propaganda. What's true is true for you. If it's not true for you, it's not true. And there's a basic statement of relativism. Uh, and yet, in their statements about being relativists and saying, if it's not true for you, it's not true, they still are very emphatic about what is true and what's not. As a matter of fact, if you want to move up in their system, you better affirm what they believe uh, is true in their worldview. But they, people today love that. If it's, not, if it's not true for you, it's not true, which is ridiculous and illogical. Scientology's worldview. Let's go a little further in this understanding of, of it. That's their basic beliefs. Now, it's, here's where it gets really wacky. And again, everything's got a different word, but let's try our best. Theta. Now, he's got reasons for this, and I got to give it to Ron Hubbard. He definitely was thinking abstractly and connecting the dots in his own mind. Now, they don't always connect. There's a lot of non sequiturs and logic. In other words, things that don't follow based on all that he said. In other words, there's lots of internal inconsistencies, and yet, man, he tries hard to build a web of, of a new structure of knowledge that uh, he's created. And it's not been in any other, you know, it's not been out there. And he's cherry-picked a few things from different philosophies. But, I mean, when he starts and says something about theta being the life force or energy in the universe, I mean, he sticks with that. And, and you can see that's not unlike a lot of religions that we've looked at, Buddhism, Hinduism, or but what he calls it theta from the Greek letter theta in the alphabet. Theta 
now this is important in the basic structure of their worldview, seeks to change, and this is the big one of their buzzwords, and once they get the buzzwords, they use them. The acronyms and buzzwords, that's, they talk in code. Matter of fact, you can't even watch a promotional video without hearing them talk about things like MEST. And then you, if you don't know what MEST is, you, you're thinking, what did he say? What does that mean? MEST stands for matter, energy, space, and time. Matter, energy, space, and time is affected by theta. Theta is the life force in the universe. And there's this turbulence that takes place when life force tries to interface with matter. Now, it's speaking at this point in the big scheme of things. There is life force that injects itself and interfaces with time, space, matter, and energy. Uh, And that's the constant goal of of, of theta, to do that. Trillions of years ago, thetans emerged from theta. Theta is the life force, and now we had thetans. Now, there's another word you've got to know if you're going to read anything from Scientology or even talk to a Scientologist. Not that you're going to run into one. They're, they're a dying breed. But if you're going to run into them anywhere, you're going to run into them in Southern California. The Thetans is what you are. You became someone who is now identified and coalesced into a unit, an individual reality from the life force of the universe. And then that happened trillions and trillions of years ago. And he said at some point that 70 trillion 95 trillion, the numbers have changed through his writings because he wrote a ton. So, Thetans, that's the immortal spirit beings, the soul. It's not what you have, and I think it's easy for us as Christians to understand because we know we're not our bodies. I mean, we are connected and, and a homogeneous whole, I suppose, but we are our spirit, software. In that sense, we get this. Thetans, they claim, are the immortal spirit, and that's who you are. Uh, and, and, and you happen to be living in, in this material world, the mess of reality, and you have to interface with that. So theta interacts with matter, energy, space, and time. You are the spirit, immortal spirit, and you have to now interface with space and time. Now to go back, 95 million years ago, Xenu was a warlord, a a dictator of a galactic confederacy. Now, I'm trying to give you this in logical format. Theta, life force, interfaces with matter, seeks to overcome and change, we become Thetans, and Thetans now are the immortal soul. Now i got to somehow get to where I am on earth. Now, to do this logically and sequentially, I'm going to give you the story, but you don't get that story in, in, in Scientology until you climb the ladder and get to these various Gnostic levels where they let you in on this information. Nevertheless, if you're going to lay it out in chronological fashion, we need to know something about Zenu, who was the warlord, the dictator of the Galactic Confederacy, which was 70, 76 planets who became uh, incredibly overpopulated. And according to Ron Hubbard, uh, there were 250 billion people per planet in this confederacy of planets that Xenu oversaw. And, and so it was getting pretty crowded. So Xenu was going to solve the problem by paring things down. But I'm going to pare down the, 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 the planet. So I'm going to take these enemies of mine and those that aren't for me, and I'm going to capture them. And I'm going to take them down to Tegitak, which is the name in his writings for Earth. And I'm going to put them inside of volcanoes. And, and then I'm going to explode the planet, that's Earth, with hydrogen bombs. And there are stories about how they got here and DC-8s. It's just a crazy, crazy story, but this is the story. And so what happened there was he left behind, as he obliterated all these overpopulated people from his galaxy, his, his confederacy of planets, and they were left here. But he brainwashed them before he left so they didn't have any, any 
conscious memories of what had happened. So the prisoners go to earth, they get thrown into volcanoes, they get blown up by hydrogen bombs, and they get left here floating around the orbit of this planet. Now, when babies are born, some of these thetans begin attaching themselves to human bodies on planet earth. And that starts going on millions of years ago. And we start to have these thetans all over, these spirits. You are a thetan, right, in Scientology. Uh, and you are interfacing with this body of yours. We'll talk about that in a minute. Somatic mind, it's called. You, this body, which is from the Greek word soma. There are body thetans now that may attach to you. I, I, I made that illustration I gave recently about the uh, octopus. You know, right? That's one of the fears of Scientology, that there are body thetans that are attaching themselves to you who had been exiled to earth because Zenu tried to take his enemies and throw them on the planet and blow them up. And so... I now have a lot of problems. Number one, I got a body that is being affected, as we'll see, from its experiences and from the experiences of my subconscious mind. We'll talk about that. And I also have the attack, perhaps, of body thetans, they're called. So I got a double problem. And, and this, by the way, was not revealed to you uh, until you got to a certain level in, in, in Scientology. As a matter of fact, the early Scientologists especially those who have critically looked at it, think he's just making this up as he's going and giving you different layers of this, of this story as you get to the next level, which, by the way, costs you. you. You have to pay through the process of getting to the next level. And this actually, and, and the Internet's great. Actually, WikiLeaks is responsible for some of this, actually, of getting this information out. I know. They're, they're active. And here is the actual handwritten story that you get at a certain level in, in Scientology, which tells the story, and you can read it here if you can, right? The head of the Galactic Confederation, 67 planets. Anyway, and he tells the story. You read it. Matter of fact, some of the people that were early in Scientology who tell their story, when you, they got to a certain level and they were able to read this, they thought it was a test to see that maybe I'm supposed to say this is nuts and I, I'm going to fail the test if I, if I believe this, right? So anyway, but no. Ron wanted you to believe this, that this is, this is real. So anyway, there's his handwritten notes of the beginning of this, and it goes on, and you can find all this on the Internet if you want. You may be tracked by spies once you read it, but all right, we'll keep going. Now, we are Thetans, and you're made up. Now, this is super important here. This gets down to the street-level Scientologists. Being Thetans, you, you learn this right out of the gate. You don't have to climb the ladder to know this, but this is important. As a Thetan, as a spirit, we possess a mind made up of two big categories. Some people talk about three, the somatic mind. We won't talk about that. That's our, our interface with our body. But the most important thing for you to know, and you can't understand Scientology without it, is that you have a, a reactive mind, they call it, which is what in, in Freud, Freud and, and psychoanalysis would be the unconscious mind. But it, it is. They would define it as it's the unconscious part of my mind, the reactive mind. It records all pain, all threats, all trauma, all experiences with fear, everything that's grief-stricken, everything that's bad. That records it all. And it stores something. Here's another key word. It stores things called engrams. Engrams are these mental pictures that take a snapshot in that moment of grief or pain or strife or whatever it might be of everything, everything I feel, everything I, I smell, everything I see, every position of everything, it, it perfectly records all of those things. And so when I experience something bad, there's a snapshot of that. One of the, the videos, if you want to pain yourself by watching these on the Scientology website to get you immediately, oh, I get it, is they'll say, you've eaten a food that's made you sick. You ate food, then you got sick. 
And then you got well, and then that food, like, you know, you, maybe you're a Burger King or whatever, you got sick, and next time you don't want Burger King. Even the sight of Burger King makes you go, ooh. They're saying, well, that's your reactive mind that has recorded a bad experience. That one you happen to know and remember and, and can think of. And that gives you this negative reaction. That's an engram. And that engram is that scarring of your, of your reactive mind. The other mind that you have, the other component of your mind is your analytical mind. Your analytical mind is your conscious mind. Now, your reactive mind is the part that's saying, oh, don't eat that food again. Or if you had somebody like your dad chewed you out and he wore glasses, that's one of the examples, and then you meet another guy that wears glasses, you're in a situation, whatever, you, you have a reaction. That's stuff you don't even think of necessarily that comes up, but your analytical mind is your conscious mind. That's where you think and your rationality and you function and everything you choose to do is through your rational mind. That's what tells your body what to do. That's what tells your, your, your day, you know, what I'm going to do that directs you. That's your volition. Your volition is directed by the, by the analytical mind. And Ron was big about saying, you're a good person. You're a perfect person in the sense that your analytical mind is a perfect computer. The only problem with you is your reactive mind because your analytical mind is exactly what it ought to be. It would, it just needs to be freed from the reactive mind. The analytical mind directs the body, as I've said. So I got two components of my mind directing how I live my life. Reactive mind, analytical mind. The goal for Thetans is to clear myself from engrams. I want no more engrams in my reactive mind to foul up my analytical mind. I just want to be an analytical mind that thinks and reasons and does things because I'm a logical, reasoning person deciding to be good, to be compassionate, to be kind, to love people. I want to do all that, and I don't want anything messing that up. Engrams are messing that up. Those memories and scars and my memory banks of my reactive mind, i got to get rid of those. That's what you may have heard is the phrase going clear or reaching clear. I want to be clear of all that. If I can ever take all the scars and, and, and bad packets of experiences in my reactive mind and, and get rid of them, then I can be clear. If I can get clear of all that, that's the first level of salvation for me. I am saved from all those negative things in my reactive mind. If you haven't reached that level yet, and it'll take you some time and some money to get there, then you're called a pre-clear. That's the word. And so, you know, that even sounds kind of scientific, or, you know, science fiction-tific. You're pre-clear, right? Like, I think a precog, I guess, because I'm thinking of, uh, you know, Tom Cruise uh, at this point. Wasn't he in that movie about the precogs? Anyway, you're never going to watch movies like that with Tom Cruise the same, I don't think, after we're done with this, but pre-clear. So you and I are pre-clears because we haven't had those engrams removed and vacuumed out of our reactive mind. That's really what we need. And, and so we need, to, we need to get there. Problem is, of course, my reactive mind's full of unconscious things that I don't think, so i got to somehow get those out. We'll talk about that in the methods in a minute. The next goal would be to move to get to gain control. I want to be in control over the, the mest, right, which they don't usually put periods behind it, but I want to remind you that's matter, energy, space, and time. I want to get control over that. So if I can get my analytical mind, my rationality, to function over my somatic mind, which is the things that I do, my body, well, then I would be gaining control over all things. I would be in charge. The name for that is an operating thetan, OT, they call it. You can't read anything in, in, in Scientology without hearing the phrase OT. An OT, what's an OT? It's not Old Testament. It's an operating thetan. And that's a spirit that operates over matter. I control things. I have control over matter, energy, space, and time, which sounds kind of ambitious, but that's really the goal. Now, there's lots of stages of that. There's at least eight stages to that. 
And you have to work through those stages and you have to pay for all the methods as we'll look at to get to those stages. And there are secrets that you get to learn in every stage. You get revealed these secrets at every stage. Now, you know that might have worked in the 1950s and 60s and even the 70s and maybe part of the 80s. But now with the internet, that part's starting to crumble. Because here's something you're never supposed to see, for instance, to get to the bridge, which is what they call it. That's another big buzzword in Scientology. I want to I cross the cross. They don't say cross the bridge. I'm going up the bridge. It's like a ladder. They should have called it a little ladder. But I'm moving up the bridge, they'll say, to get to total freedom. And the first segment I get through is going clear. I got to get clear of all the engrams. And then once I'm clear from my engram, now I'm a rational person in control of things. And I got to start conquering control over the eight stages of control which are all different various things, including the dynamics of life, which is sex and uh, my, my survival in all these areas and, and uh, uh, relationships and family, and it goes on and on. But here's a chart, for instance, you're not supposed to see. And you start at the bottom and you move up. You go through all these procedures. And I know you can't read the boxes, but I just want to show how complicated this is. You grade zero, grade one, grade two, all the way to the new era dynamics. I get exposed to that. And then I'm finally going to go clear up here. That's my goal. And then once you go clear, then you start moving up. You go through all these courses that you have to pay for and get involved in, all the methods. And then I start moving up. Now, I said there were eight stages, and there is eight stages, but recently they've added more stages. Uh, and I know because people start getting to the top, and then they're going to bail out or not pay. So we're going we're gonna to give you more stages. And we got up to 15, and some of these aren't even revealed yet from what I understand. Or maybe they are still secret, but they're not out there yet. So what are the methods? Well, let's talk about this first way we get you involved in this is to tell you, you got some things in your life that aren't the way they ought to be. Now that's called sin and we all know that. Now you want to find out that people got problems. That's not hard to do. But one of the ways they get you down that path is things called, uh, something called free personality testing. They have something called the Oxford personality test, which has nothing to do with the University of Oxford. It's just a name, but they will give you this prepackaged personality exam. So when you see something like that, and you will, you'll walk through some place in LA and you'll see free personality testing, right? Uh, or you'll see something on the internet, say, are you curious about yourself? Or, you know, come on in today and we'll screen your personality. These are, it should be for you immediate triggers that, oh, we're talking about Scientology here. That, that, I mean, the average person doesn't want to give you a free personality test. Dunkin' Donuts doesn't want to give you a free personality test. These are storefronts and organizations to get you involved in Scientology. The other thing you'll often see out there in the street is a stress test because all they're trying to do is to uncover you got problems, which is not hard for any human being to uncover. Well, some, I suppose, would be hard for them to admit it. But once you get someone to admit they got a problem, when Scientology is the answer, because every problem you have is related to engrams that are scarring up your reactive mind that are causing problems in your rational mind. So you can walk down the street and see this, right? The free stress tests. And, you know, here's one in uh, Venice Beach, or at least he's wearing a Venice Beach uh, shirt. And oftentimes, they're right up front. You'll see in this particular desk, you got L. Ron Hubbard's books out, Dianetics, sitting on the table. But they will also sit there and give you a, a stress test. Even at the stress test, they will give you something that is related to what you'll get into, a series of chapters in going through what's called auditing sessions. There's another key word, auditing. You've got to know that word in, in Scientology. Everybody talks about their auditing sessions. At the core of the auditing session is something called an E-meter, an E-meter, electropsychometer meter, right, which are made under lock and key, and it's very specially uh, constructed. Here's a picture of it, the E-meter. 
these little barrels that, you, that look like cans, right? You hold on to those. There are wires attached, clips to the top. They go to this meter, and it's, these are all constructed for Scientology for the purpose of auditing. They'll get you started on the street by giving you a stress test where you'll take hold of those cans. They'll ask you questions. The auditor will sit across from you, watch the needle bounce up and down. Sessions are done by an auditor, and you have to get to a certain level to be able to audit someone else, and they're going to help you defeat the engrams by first identifying them. And the way they're going to identify them, if we're going to look at things that are messing up your life, we're going to have to talk about things that messed up your life, and they start getting real personal real fast. Tell me about your first sexual encounter. Tell me about a time when you were, you know, uh, totally humiliated. Tell me about the, sh- the big shame in your life and what are you most ashamed of. So you start going. They're taking notes. They're, they're recording it in certain auditing sessions. Uh, they're, they're watching their meter here to bounce around and, and making decisions and saying, well, I don't, think that's, I don't think that's fully true. I don't think that was, you know, what, what you felt or when you felt it. And then every time there's something going on that there's a problem, they want to keep going back in time. They want to go back until they get to the place where they're exploring your thoughts prenatally and your experiences prenatally. And then once you get through that, and I'm not kidding, when you're in your mom, then it gets back to your former lives. And they will keep going, keep going, keep going. Because your engrams in your reactive mind have been collected through past lives. So we've got to uncover those. You have questions that are all about your history, embarrassment, shame, etc. And they build a file on you that has your, your most embarrassing moments. The auditor interprets the movements of the e-meter, right? Which is really nothing more than, than what's going on. I'll show you this in a minute. But what's going on in terms of uh, um, the, elect- the electric uh, resistance in your body is all it is. It's an ohm meter is all it is. Um, yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. So here's, here's a street, for instance, uh, uh, auditing session going on. Well, this is one trying to pull people in. They don't normally do them out in the open. Uh, but they will for stress tests and, and so forth to get you hooked, to show you that we've got a piece of equipment here that's going to tell you what's going on. By the way, it's one part of a um, lie detector. It's one of the things, you know, they do breathing and, and pulse rate and all that. Well, one of the things is the uh, echodermal responses of your skin, which is nothing more than depending on how much sweat you've got and, you know, what your pul- uh, your, your, uh, just the resistance of, of the electricity coming through that battery uh, to, not the battery. Yeah, well, it has a battery on it, but to test the resistance of the electricity through you. And if you were to have an, a, a real polygraph, this, was, this would be one aspect of it, not in this machine. Here's John Travolta, for instance, being audited with his auditing cans here. Um, and that's when the meters were green back in the day. Now they're blue. Uh, these were sold. This is from 1941, by the way. Not big cans, but small cans. Here's one advertised. I found this old advertisement from a magazine. Um, it's a, a light, a, you know, electric lie detector, a fun, provoking stunt for parties. And it's marketed to, you know, kids and young people wearing suits to parties. Um, and uh, I know, testing, I know, testing, uh, you know, the, the, their friends. And again, I said it's an ohm meter because I actually tried this. I went into my garage and got my ohm meter out that I paid 19 bucks for. I don't, I don't need, you know, Hubbard's expensive model. And, I mean, you can hold that, squeeze it. Depending on how you squeeze it, how much sweat's on your hand, you can watch the needle on the ohm meter respond to that. That's all it is. It's a, it's a $20 gadget um, sold for a lot more than that. And if you want to look at that, you can find all kinds of YouTube videos, people that have stolen them and gotten them on the black market or whatever, and they'll show you. They'll take them apart and show you what's inside of them. All right. Methods. Get you hooked, personality test, stress test, get you in auditing sessions, you move up through the ranks, you find all the problems, they find all the embarrassing moments about you, they build a file on you. Now... 
you're going to get to a place where if you do go clear, you want to get to that area of, of that level of controlling everything. Well, we're going to help you with that through TRs, they call them. Everything's got, you know, abbreviations, TRs, training routines. Now, this is really weird. Matter of fact, you should go on YouTube if you have any interest in this and watch people. There are some uh, videos of this of people going through the TRs, the training routines, and it's very, very bizarre. Uh, these sessions are supposed to move you toward being an operating thetan, to get to a place where I'm in, in control of mess, of, of matter and energy and space and time. Um, they're very intensive, very repetitive, very lengthy, and there's manuals for this. If I'm taking someone through their TRs, their training routines, I, I'm doing. you start even just by doing kind of the stare down, you know, when your kids do the don't blink game in the car or whatever. That's, that, that's basically how the first level starts. You're just supposed to sit there and not be uncomfortable being two, you know, two feet from someone else, knee to knee, and not, not, not blink. And then you're going to start saying things. Then you're going to start answering things. And sometimes these go on for hours. Um, early stages are basically about you learning to show restraint, to be calm, to have reactions that are the way they ought to be in terms of someone who's in full control of themselves and their bodies. Later, you're working on answering things where you're going to show self-control. They may yell at you. They may say things to you that you're supposed to respond completely different to. Sometimes they're telling you to say completely illogical things in response to their questions to show if you can control your communication in any situation. That's why actors, by the way, say this is great. They love their Scientology, their TRs, because it helps them be good actors because they can respond to any situation any way they want because they're in full control of their faculties because they've gone past clear and now they're into becoming an operating thetan. And you can become that pretty early in this, but you move through increasing levels. Uh, sometimes they're done usually in, in, in private, but here's a section where, you know, a session where they're having them go on uh, in, in this room. Uh, this may even be a training session of, of auditors. All right. Of course, there is authority in this, and that comes through the writing of L. Ron Hubbard. One of the methods is getting you to read all of his works. Uh, his works are considered, they'll even call them this, scriptures. When they moved from Dianetics to Scientology to become a religion, what they had to do then is start talking more in terms of scripture. And they said, well, you know, the Bible, scripture, and he even actually said, you know, like the book of Luke, you know, scripture, he used that in the... I think in the Articles of Incorporation, and, and of course the writings of L. Ron Hubbard, which he was living and alive and doing these things, writing these things at the time. There are so many. It started with Dianetics, which he still wants people to read because that's the essence of the philosophy. Um, he went into three versions of that, three different versions. And then he wrote Science of Survival, uh, Self-Analysis. These are all different books. Advanced Procedures and Axioms, uh, Handbook for Preclears, uh, History of Man, which is one of the most bizarre ones ever where you're going to talk about our, our, you know, we used to, how our jaws came to be because we were clams and we would get sand in our, I'm serious, sand and the irritation created teeth and it talks about evolution, at least from his scientific uh, perspective, quote unquote. Um, I could keep going. He's got all these different books that are creation of human ability, uh, the Dianetics 55, uh, the fundamentals of thought. Anyway, he was a prolific writer. So all of his writings are considered scripture. You can go to these places like in Clearwater, Florida. You can go in and buy his writings. What you'll find, though, is it's hard to find these electronically. Man, you can't even get Dianetics uh, like on a, on a Kindle, right? You can't find that. You have to, they want you to buy the, the, the print book. Um, all right. 
Scientology structure, just really quick because we're running out of time. Field ministers, they call them. The basic auditors and trainers, they do training. They do auditing. They'll take you through the TRs. Uh, then there's the advanced auditors and trainers. They do lectures and courses. They're kind of up on the, on the scale. There's the uh, continental liaison offices that are kind of regional. They're kind of like the bishops in the old uh, Episcopal church. They oversee territories. Then there's what's called the flag service organization. That's the people that work as executives in the Clearwater Spiritual Headquarters. There's the international management which is a variety of entities. If you look up an uh, organizational chart for ontology, it's very complex. They have all kinds of organizations. There's this weird thing called the Sea Org, uh, the Sea Organization, which is, they call it an unincorporated naval force, which they take real seriously. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. The chairman of the board today, we had L. Ron Hubbard. He died. He left without a succession plan. David Miscavige, who was one of his uh, guys, Sea Org, was a part of his team, did promotions for him. He was high up in the organization. He ended up taking over and becoming uh, the, the, the chairman of the board. So David Miscavige, Miscavige is at the top of this. Uh, they will say he's worse than, than L. Ron Hubbard in terms of his domineering. I mean, L. Ron Hubbard, they, they would, he would have 14, 16-year-old girls following around on his ship and catch his ashes with an ashtray. They would ha- he would have 15-year-old girls stand outside of his cabin door and wait for him if he needed anything to call out. And they would rush in and say, you know, Captain, what, what do you need? So he fancied himself this naval officer, this commander. And David Miscavige came along, and though they say he's even more domineering and, and worse. Here's David Miscavige, by the way. I, I believe this is in Clearwater, or this actually may be uh, internationally in, in Israel. But nevertheless, here he is all, all quaffed out uh, doing his thing as the, the leader of Scientology. Here he is at the head of the Sea Org. This is the Sea Organization. They wear, I know, they're not the Navy, but they act like it. And they wear their thing, and here he is by his, his big uh, wheel. And uh, here's an old ad from L. Ron Hubbard. Here he is with his sea captain hat on. It reminds me of, uh, you know, Captain and, and Gilligan, actually. But anyway, there he is. Took himself real seriously. In, in uh, all the broad universe, there is no other hope for man than ourselves, Scientology. This is a tremendous responsibility. I have borne it too long alone. Share it with me now. Come and enlist. L. Ron H. says, and that's what they call Everything's got initials. L. Ron H. is their guy. So you join the Sea Org, for instance, and you sign a contract. And what would be interesting to you is knowing that we're immortal souls and have lived all these past lives and we will live all these lives in the future. Here's a line you need to look real closely at in this thing. I therefore contract myself to the Sea Organization for the next billion years. Okay? You thought your mortgage was never ending. I mean, this makes a 30-year mortgage look e- A billion years of service. And they do it. They join the Sea Org, and, and they quote Elron Hubbard, and they to go out there to try and bring, as it says here, do whatever it takes to bring Dianetics and Scientology to the world. It's our duty to create a sane planet. So get rid of those engrams, clear out the reactive mind. We need to get everybody on board. And he takes it, I mean, he'll wear this stuff around like he's, you know, the captain of, of the ship. And, and if you don't think guys, you know, Tom Cruise is in this, yeah, he'll salute old uh, Dave Miscavige. Here he is at one of the events uh, I, I've seen Tom Cruise saluting pictures of L. Ron Hubbard, you know, unbelievable. Miscavige and, and, and Cruise, there's a lot of stories on these two guys. They hung out uh, on, on set. They become good friends. Of course, Tom Cruise is the ultimate spokesperson for 
I mean, the, the most, the, the, he's the biggest clout guy they've got, and so they're tight. Anyway, they're two peas in a pot. If you want to know more about Dave Miscavige, here's a book I read by his father that came out not long ago, uh, Scientology, My Son David Miscavige and Me. Ron Miscavige was kicked out of Scientology and is not allowed to see his grandkids, uh, cannot have anything to do, hasn't talked to his son in years. So this is the father of the head of Scientology. And, and I read this book. He tells his whole story uh, about, I mean, you can't get any closer than be the dad of the guy in charge, I suppose. Uh, and, and he was an active member and participant, but now he's not, and he's willing to write books. And uh, I mean, he's apologetic at points, but basically is willing to throw his, his son off the cliff in this book. You, well, what does it teach about Christianity? What about God? Well, I've read a lot of it, but there are passing, passing references to God, gods, and supreme being, beings. Trust me, it's not an important part of this. You don't read much about it. How about Jesus Christ? Well, he says outright, I reject the Christian Christ. I reject it. I believe there was a Jesus, and he was a shade above clear, so he was not quite an operating Phaeton. Uh, he'll say the same of Buddha, but, you know, but he was clear. He, yeah. He had the engram thing figured out. Uh, what about us? We're intrinsically good. Already said that. Can become godlike. Uh, each Thetan is 80 trillion years old. Um, each Thetan, when we die, reports to Mars. That's where the kind of the staging area is for Thetans to come before they get shot back to Earth into new bodies. Just telling you what he wrote. All right. We're out of time.